So I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you, ha- that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illimited, illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sought a birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. You're probably going, what does Hebrews 12 have to do with Daniel 11? Hopefully, (laughs) we'll weave it in. We'll see how it goes. So tonight, we are continuing on in this last section of Daniel Last week, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I encourage you to go back and find that in the podcast. Last week, we looked at chapter 10, and 10 through 12 form one cohesive literary unit, one cohesive section, one single climactic visionary experience that Daniel has towards the end of his life, and this is sort of the finale 
of this great book that we've been going through. Um, like I said last week, it would be a really good idea when you sit down and you read these chapters to read 10, 11, and 12 in one cohesive thought. So I know we're breaking it up into sections, and I'm doing 11 tonight and 10 last week. But if you read it, try to get all the way through chapter 11 and then into 12. Chapter 10, like I said last week, forms the prelude, sort of the backdrop, the spiritual unveiling and the apocalypse of what's happening behind the scenes that sets up chapter 11. Chapter 11 is this vision that we're going to look at tonight. And then 12 is a conclusion, both for the book and ultimately for this vision that we're going to look at tonight. We'll get to that next week. Tonight, though, we are going to be in chapter 11, which I'm curious, how many of you got a chance to read chapter 11 ahead of time? Yeah. How many of you guys, it was like your favorite piece of scripture you've ever read? Daniel chapter 11, if I'm honest with you guys, is a tough one. It's really tough. And uh, it's so tough. One of the commentators that I read this week actually said Daniel, cha Daniel chapter 11 is best suited for a Bible study and ought not to be preached. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, we believe that all Scripture is uh, God-breathed, is profitable and useful, right? Second Timothy 3, we believe that all Scripture is useful for teaching and reproof and correction, and this is Scripture. So we are going to get through it, and it's going to be useful for us. Amen? That means that even a tricky passage like this one, according to Second Timothy, is profitable. It's good for us. So my prayer tonight is that it would speak to us, that this passage would uh, equip us to better follow Jesus in our discipleship. Amen? All right. So as we are winding down this study, remember the whole point of us looking at Daniel is not just to know the stories, not just to be familiar with these prophecies and, and know all the different Sunday school stories about the lions and, and all the different things that happen in this book. But ultimately, we are looking at what does it mean to be faithful in exile? What does it mean to live as a faithful exile? Why is this book even in the scriptures? How has this encouraged faithfulness and steadfastness throughout the generations? Next week, ultimately, we'll conclude this study, sort of. We're going we're gonna to take two weeks and look at what happens after the exile. But ultimately, for tonight's message, I do think it would be helpful to remember something that we looked at like several weeks ago now. Do you guys remember I put a photo on the screen of Yosemite? This is yes. See, Greg, they can't hear me. Um, sorry. Uh, I showed a photo, and, and it's about this thing called telescoping prophecy. What happens is, like that photo of Yosemite, when you look from the tunnel view of Yosemite, when you look at a, a view of mountains, 
often it looks like, especially through a, a photo lens, it looks like they're all in one plane. What you see is all of these peaks in one line. But it's an optical illusion because when you look at it from satellite or if you look at it from a, a good map, those peaks are actually miles apart from each other. Biblical prophecy in our passage tonight, I think, is intended to be read that way. There is both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment and possibly multiple fulfillments along the way. So as we look at chapters like we're looking at tonight, some of these prophecies, some of this is fulfilled pretty clearly, pretty plainly, within the next 375 years after Daniel. There's a whole bunch of political drama that we'll look at shortly that is a pretty clear fulfillment of this prophecy. But also, this is important, I think, much of this is pointing further, much further, beyond our day to an ultimate fulfillment at the end and a climactic drama surrounding the Antichrist, and it gets nuts. They're not meant to be read as mutually exclusive. I think both are true at the same time. Does that make sense? Let's jump into chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you might want to have them open. Just keep them open to chapter 11. We're going to walk through it. Chapter 11, Daniel 11 is one of the most complicated, detailed prophecies we have. It's one of the most specifically fulfilled, predictive passages in the Old Testament. It covers a historic period of about 375 years, give or take, and it continues on, like I said, to the end times. This passage is so accurate in its fulfillments uh, that liberal scholars, those who deny the supernatural origins of Scripture, they will actually use this passage and they will, as they read it and they hold it, against script, or hold it against history, they will say there is absolutely no way this could have been written before the events happened. And so the way they deal with it is they say this must have been written way after the fact, told narratively as prophecy, trying to make everybody think that this happened ahead of time. I don't believe that's true. I think that the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. That he told Daniel. Okay, let's jump into this passage. We're going to start at verse 2. Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the king, kingdom of Greece. All right, so remember last week, there's this angelic being, some people think Gabriel, talking to Daniel. And he's describing or explaining this vision says, okay, there's going to be three kings that come, three Persian kings that come, and then there's going to be a fourth that come. And that fourth one is going to be far 
more powerful and rich than the previous three. Three kings come, and then a fourth. That fourth king is King Xerxes. That same Xerxes that you can read about in the story of Esther. And in one verse, in in verse 2, the period from 538 to 331 B.C. is covered. It's a quick jump. Four kings, not that concerned. Then we end up with Xerxes. We know that Xerxes from history, he will lead. You guys okay with some history tonight? Going to have to be. Xerxes will lead an invasion against the Greeks. He will make an attempt to invade and to conquer the Greeks. And ultimately, he will be turned back by them and not victorious. And here, very quickly sets the tone. We're looking at two kingdoms. The Greeks and the Persians, two empires. The question is, why? Like, there's lots of other empires and kingdoms and things that are happening on the earth. Why are we looking at these two, the Persians and the Greeks? Both of these empires made attempts to completely wipe out the people of God. Throughout history, we have this. The Persians, during the reign of Xerxes, they made an attempt. There was an attempt, the plot of Haman, to completely wipe out the Jewish people. You can read about it in the book of Esther. The Greeks, they tried to wipe out the Jews during the reign of Antiochus IV. We talked about him a few weeks ago, and we're going to talk a lot more about him tonight. So as we look at these two empires, that's what kind of the context of what we're dealing with. And let's get into verse 3. Daniel 11.3. Then a mighty king shall arise who's, who shall rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to the others beside him. Verse 3 describes the emergence of this mighty king, this great king. Almost every scholar agrees this verse 3 is talking about Alexander the Great. Alexander, we know from history, was a massive force to be reckoned with. He conquered much of the known world. He was a mighty king, but not for very long. Alexander died somewhere around the age 32 after a drunken party in Babylon. He got a fever and died, and he's gone. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that for as great and influential as Alexander is on the course of history, like literally, his effect on history affects us still today. And for as great and mighty and powerful as he is, Daniel gives him two verses. This prophecy gives Alexander two passages. Why? For as vast as an empire as he built, he really left the Jewish people alone. 
we have not, not, not a whole lot of evidence of him troubling the Jewish people. Not like Xerxes or not like Antiochus IV, for sure. And here's why. It's, it's fascinating to me, just some of this history. When Alexander and his armies were moving through the land of Israel, they were moving on their war path, conquering everything that was in front of them. Something incredible happened. Sort of the legend behind this, and this is coming from Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian. The legend behind this is that Alexander, as he's going through the land of Israel, he has a dream. And in his dream, he sees this man dressed in purple in these fine garments. And so he's anticipating this. And as he comes into Jerusalem, the high priest comes dressed in his priestly garb with all the priests around him dressed in white linen. And they come marching out to meet Alexander the Great. As Josephus says, the high priest opens the scroll of Daniel and he points to this verse that we just read and says, see Alexander, this is you. You're going to be victorious. Now he probably only read verse 3 because verse 4 says it won't last very long. But that's the legend. That's, Josephus says that's how it went down. And because of that, Alexander was so impressed that he left them alone to worship Yahweh as they saw fit. And he goes on to continue to conquer. But ultimately, Alexander dies. A young death. Young king leaves no heirs. Or at least any potential heir that he had was seen as unfit or was murdered. So his kingdom, his succession was left to four generals. And his kingdom was divided, as Daniel says, to the four winds. Broken up into four parts. Now most of this chapter, the rest of this chapter, deals with two of those four generals. The other two, it pretty much ignores. It doesn't really touch them. Basically, I think that's because they had very little involvement with the Jewish people. But two of these deal very extensively with the promised land. The two that it deals with, it calls the king of the north and the king of the south. And essentially, what had developed after Alexander dies is this perpetual civil war between these two kingdoms, these two generals and their dynasty after them. Look at verse 5. The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger and he, uh, than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. This king of the south, this mighty king that's talked about here, would become strong, stronger than the other kings, and he would have power and dominion. The king of the south would be fulfilled by a a man named uh, Ptolemy. Ptolemy I. He ruled basically from Egypt, hence the south. He ended up building this dynasty. His sons ruled after him. 
The king of the north would be Seleucus and the Seleucid dynasty. They would rule from Syria up north. Really much of the remaining of chapter 11 is played out as this interplay between these two dynasties. The Ptolemaic and the Seleucid dynasty would begin fighting and it would last for about 130 years. And all the time, whichever empire was the strongest would possess the Holy Land. So what we have here is this civil war and in the middle is this no man's land of Israel. And essentially, verse 6 through 21, which I'm not going to take the time to read. You should read it, but it's a lot to read. Verse 6 through 21 essentially describes alliances and marriages between the two kingdoms. Wars that would break out between them. Victory to the north, then a comeback from the south. Then the north occupying over the glorious land, that's Israel. Then more alliances and more marriages. Then more defeats of the king of the south. And then ultimately his anger following those defeats. That's verse 6 through 21 in a nutshell. (laughs) What's amazing is this accurately tells the story of what would take place. The way it's told here in Daniel 11 pretty accurately tells the story. So much so, like I said, that the people who deny the authority of Scripture say that there's no other explanation of how accurate this is than that it was written after the fact. But we know that we serve an eternal, all-knowing God, an all-powerful God. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the future better than you know what happened last week. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of God's sovereignty. We get a glimpse of God's foreknowledge, a glimpse of God's kindness to tell his people beforehand. It's not just God showing off either. I think partly it's so that we can trust the scriptures. That we can be confident that this is not just man's interpretation of history, but that the Lord has foreknown and foreordained. He has a plan. He knows the beginning from the end. He is involved in the moving of kings and kingdoms. That's kind of the underlying theme through this whole book of Daniel is that God's involved. He's moving everything forward to the fulfillment of all things and the restoration of the heavens and the earth. Let's jump down to verse 21. This gets interesting. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So the angel tells Daniel that after this brief, after the brief reign of the king of the north, would come a king that was such a vile 
What was the word? Contemptible person. He would not come to the throne legitimately. He would come through some intrigue, some manipulation, some schemes. Most scholars agree this is Antiochus IV. We looked at him a few weeks ago. Antiochus Epiphanes. He took on the title Epiphanes, which means the glorious or the illustrious. He's implying that he is one of the gods. The Jewish people played with, as they do, they play with words. They played with that name Epiphanes, and they called him, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this, Epmanes, which means madman or out of his mind. They mocked him. So let's look at what happens here in verse 22. Verse 22, he fails to conquer the king of the south, and he leads a great battle, but shall not stand. Then jump down to verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the kings of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with exceedingly great, with an exceedingly, exceedingly great and mighty army. And he shall not stand, for his plots shall be, for plots shall be devised against him. Okay. Despite epic efforts from this vile king to conquer the king of the south, he did not succeed, and his armies ultimately were destroyed and sent packing. This is one of the epic and most pivotal battles in history and antiquity. The reason why here is that the southern kingdom, the reason it could stand against him was because it called in the assistance of a new player, the Romans. The story goes, Antiochus would be defeated ultimately by the power of a Roman navy that was just coming onto the scenes. The legend has it that Antiochus would be defeated on the shores of North Africa and held by a Roman general on the sand, and the Roman general would draw a circle around him that he would have to decide if he would submit to the Romans before he left that circle, or he would be killed. He would ultimately submit. And after this defeat, he would take his orders from Rome. He was utterly defeated and humiliated. And on his way back through the Holy Land, he took out every bit of aggression and anger. He took out all of his rage against the Jewish people. Daniel eleven thirty one. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination which makes desolate. He took away the daily sacrifices. He placed the abomination of desolation in the temple. Literally, he took an image of Zeus and he put it in the temple. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. 
completely desecrating the temple of Yahweh. He carried out his vengeance on the whole city. His wrath was unleashed on the Jewish people. 80,000 Jews were said to be killed. 40,000 taken as prisoners. Another 40,000 carried off into slavery. He would plunder the temple of all its gold and riches. This was a very dark time for the Jewish people, for the people of God. And then we get this verse, verse 32. This is what I think is the crux. As I was studying this this week, as I was praying through this passage, verse 32 just jumped out at me. Underline this in your Bibles. Starting second part there, verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they'll stumble by sword and flame and captivity and plunder. It's a fascinating verse, especially in the context. This glimmer of hope in the most darkest of times, in the worst persecution up until that time to have broken out against God's people, you get this glimmer of hope. Again, a theme throughout this entire book of Daniel, this hope in the midst of turmoil. And in the context, this word is assuring No matter how bad it looks out there in the world, no matter what comes against you, if you know your God, if you trust in him, if you go deep in your discipleship, you will be strong in him and you will be able to serve him effectively, ultimately to save others, no matter what's happening around you. Look, I think the reality is, I believe that as time goes on, things will get darker and darker. Equally, I think the church will get brighter and brighter. But there will be an increasingly, there will increasingly develop persecutions and, and trials and problems for the church. It's, it will happen. The way of Jesus stands to be vilified. Persecution will come. This is ultimately the Antichrist agenda. His goal, I believe, is to get Christians so deluded in their faith, so watered down and so compromised, that they're easily swept away by his schemes. But now, you guys, now is the time to press into Jesus. Now is the time to lean in, to get rid of compromise, to get rid of complacency. To practice the way of Jesus, truly. To be the people who know our God. So that we can stand firm and so that we can take action. So that we can be the wise among us. So that we can share good news with the lost and dying world around us. 
This verse is like a shining light in the midst of darkness. The rest of this chapter, I believe, is clearly telescoped straight to the future. Starting in verse 36, it seems like themes change. There's a shift. In verse 36, thing, sorry, things don't seem to point anymore at a historic figure. It doesn't quite work. Now, all of a sudden, we're looking at a, a future figure. Antiochus was bad. But ultimately, he's just foreshadowing this Antichrist figure. He was bad. He was really bad. But he did not exalt himself as the only God, as the rest of this chapter goes. He still worshiped Zeus. He put an image of Zeus in the temple. But there is one coming. That Antiochus was nothing but a trailer for. And I believe that in every generation, there has been Antichrist type spirits that all foreshadow and point to one ultimate figure. These Antichrist spirits, I believe, are at war with the people of God. They're working against making the gospel known. And in every generation, I believe, in our generation, there are those who know their God. As verse 40 through 45 describes this final conflict, not just what happened in history, but this is now taking the language of this prophecy and it's telescoping it into the future for us. There will be a great conflict, apparently bigger than that of the kings of the north and the south. And the good news for us, ultimately, is that this, whatever this is, this antichrist agenda, whatever this plot, it fails. Jesus wins. Jesus conquers. He's victorious. But the reality I think we have to wrestle with, and that's not just a trite statement, Jesus wins. We have to wrestle with this for a bit. Because the reality is God is not on our side. We have to get on his side. We should do everything we can to join him and to follow him, and to become like him, and to choose to practice the way of Jesus. He doesn't just join our side. That's not how it works. To know our God, to be strong in him, to do what he wants us to do. And the reality is that if persecution should arise, as Bible people, this is maybe hard to hear, but it's not going to be our knowledge of these end-time scriptures that saves us. It's not going to be our knowledge of these prophecies that prepares us even. 
It's ultimately the knowledge of God. It's those who know their God. The people who know him. In the scriptures, the word know typically, and this verse in particular, implies more than just cognitive knowledge. This is not just knowing about God. This is not just knowing facts about God or the biblical story. Do you know him? Have you experienced him? We read that passage from Hebrews to start off this evening. And for me, I think that's the takeaway from this passage. Hebrews 12, if you can turn there if you want. Hebrews 12 is coming on the heels of what we call the hall of faith, right? And it starts off like this, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Despite everything that stands in front of us, or happens around us, whatever might come or whatever problems or trials you face, let us lay aside every weight that so easily entangles us. Let us lay aside the weight of sin. Everything that easily distracts us, let us lay it aside so that we can run with endurance Endurance implies a long, difficult journey. The race that's set before us. How do we do that? Same thing we ended with last week. The author of Hebrews says we look to Jesus. We set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus. He's our model. He's our strength. He's our comfort. Chapter 12 continues. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding of blood. The point here is pretty clear. What can they do? Shed blood? Kill you? For a follower of Jesus, there's not even sting in that. Death, where's your sting? Where's your power? You, ha you have no power. The most vile thing this is the hope for us as followers of Jesus. The most vile thing an antichrist could do to you, kill you, it's nothing. It has no sting. It's completely powerless. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. Jump down to verse 12, still in Hebrews. And I think this is our charge. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight the paths of your feet, clean up your walk, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Peace with everyone and holiness of character so that the world might see the character of Jesus. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by many become defiled. No one is sexually immoral or unholy as Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. There is... An Antichrist agenda, it, it exists. It's at work around us. It comes to wreak havoc on the world. But for us, the answer is simple follow Jesus, practice the way of Jesus. Be with him, become like him, do what he did. This is discipleship. It's the way of Jesus. And the reality is, and what we see throughout these chapters in Daniel, in the life of Daniel, is the way of Jesus is often marked by suffering. And that's okay. In fact, the way of Jesus is cruciform. It means cross before glory. Always. And while we've grown up, we're living in a time of peace and prosperity. This might seem abnormal and foreign. I think all of that, my opinion here, is a ploy of the enemy to lull us to sleep and to passivity. To not be aware of what God is doing. To not be active, to not know our God and do good work. My prayer for us as a community is that we would not be found sleeping, but that we would be faithful. We would be found as the ones who know our God, who stand firm and take action. Amen? We're gonna close in prayer. Jordan, you can come back up. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that even the tough passages, the ones that take multiple times to read through, take investigation, take searching out, God, that you are faithful to speak to us. God, I pray that we would be ones who know you, God, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of God. That we would know our God truly. That we would experience him. That we would know that he is real in a tangible way. God, help us to set our eyes on you. 
to look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to set our eyes on Jesus. Father, we trust you. No matter what happens around us, we know that you are sovereign. You are almighty and powerful. That you accomplish your will by bringing up kings and tearing them down. And God, that you choose to partner with us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to be with you, to know you, and to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.